Our scripture reading this afternoon is from 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 17. The passages can be found on page 10 of the bulletin and will also be projected above. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Caleb. All right, uh, kids, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin that is in that worship bag. You can grab that, and there's a place on there to, uh, to write down three things that I want you to listen specifically for that I'm going to mention. One is the sound of a jet taking off. Uh, secondly, an illustration about an iceberg. And then finally, an illustration about a venomous snake. So a jet taking off, an iceberg, and a venomous snake. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true. We thank you that you have given it to us because you love us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would attend to us now by your spirit, that you would work with your word to accomplish what you desire in us. We pray this all for your glory and for our good as your people. Amen. One of the great storylines from the Super Bowl tonight that many of you have no doubt heard about is that there are two brothers playing against each other. So Travis Kelsey is a tight end for the Chiefs. He's playing his brother Jason Kelsey, who is the center for the Philadelphia Eagles. And in the past year, they have begun a podcast. And I think it's just been in like the past three weeks. It has skyrocketed to being one of the most popular podcasts on Apple Podcasts right now. Uh, It's called New Heights, and um, one of the things they were talking about on their show a couple weeks ago was whether it was more difficult to be the visiting team playing at Arrowhead in Kansas City or playing at, I think it's Lincoln Memorial or Lincoln Financial. Lincoln Financial used to be Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. And uh, and so they they talked about how they're difficult places to play for different reasons. So Arrowhead, for example is incredibly difficult because of how loud it is. So Arrowhead actually holds the Guinness World Record for the largest stadium, or the the loudest stadium in the world. And that record was set at a Monday night game, this is a 2014 Monday night game against the Patriots. And the, the noise hit 142 decibels. I don't know if that means anything to you. It didn't mean anything to me initially until you find out that that is louder than a jet taking off. Okay, And so you can imagine how hard it would be to try to, uh, to call plays, to call an audible at the, at the line of scrimmage, to hear the snap count, or just to try to communicate or think rightly and, and clearly with that kind of volume going on around you. So that's Arrowhead. That's why it's so hard to play there. Philadelphia, on the other hand, though, is one of the hardest places to play because of how hostile their fans are. All right? <laughs> 
So you might not know this, um, but the, it, it, things were so rowdy at Veterans Stadium that in the late 90s, there was actually a courtroom and a jail in Veterans Stadium. It was called Eagles Court, and so they had these judges who would volunteer to serve in that way. So what could happen is that for all kinds of things, disorderly conduct, public intoxication, fighting, uh, they would be arrested and taken to this jail, and a lot of times they, they would just plead guilty right there. So you could be arrested and sentenced all before even going home from the game, right there. Uh, they, they actually, when they moved to Lincoln Financial in 2003, they, they stopped doing that. But, uh, but that's a hard place to play, right? So, so here's the point. Away games in any setting are awfully hard. They're always hard. And so that, that's why every team uh, wants, uh, would much rather play at home, where you have this friendly environment, where, where everybody there is for you. And, and that's even the case uh, if you're a fan, it's, it's more fun to go to a game uh, for your team when you're playing at home because everybody's there on the same page, on the same team with one another. Okay, why I mention that? Well, I mention that because there's a sense in which Peter's audience is living in a sort of perpetual away game. If you remember, they, uh, they were converted in, in Rome. They became Christians in Rome, and then they were scattered all over the Roman Empire. And so part of what that meant is that they were pulled away from their homes and they were pulled out of the, the, these communities that initially nurtured their faith in Jesus. And so what Peter says in this passage is he calls them sojourners and exiles. And he calls them that not just because they've been scattered geographically, although that's part of it. They're literally not in their homeland anymore. But, but he's saying you are in exile as well because you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And what happened when you became a Christian is that this world now, the world in which you live, is no longer your home. And it's true for, for all Christians that, that, that this world will be our home one day, but not until Jesus returns. And so uh, Doug Webster puts it this way. This is a quote in the front of your bulletin. He says, home is no longer where we are from, but where we are headed we don't need to travel to a foreign country to feel like a visitor. We are homeless in our homeland. And so the, the, the question then is, what does it look like to live faithfully in that context? That's the question that, that Peter's audience is asking, and this is the question that, that, that we are asking as well. And, uh, and so that, that's this question that we've been asking as we've made our way through this book. And what I want to point out as we're coming into this specific passage, because Peter gets, uh, um, he starts to apply this real, uh, real specifically here, it's that uh, this is actually a question that the church has wrestled with historically. How do we interact in a world and engage with the world that does not share our faith in Jesus? And there, there are really sort of two extremes towards which the, the, the church has tended over the years. So it goes something like this. The first would be this. It's isolation. And so here's how the thinking goes. I think our, our, our neighbors, our world, don't believe, uh, don't have faith in Jesus. They reject this Christian message, message. And so we either need to get out and separate ourselves from this world. That's one possibility. Or launch some sort of full-on attack and, and, and fight back in some way. And a lot of times that fight will take a political form. And so, so culture becomes something over which we need to fight. That's sort of the, the isolation perspective. And so in terms of that first illustration, illustration it would be uh, like trying to, to separate and pretend like you're not at an away game. 
try to separate yourself and pretend like you're not there. So that's isolation. On the other hand, though, the church has also tended towards the, the extreme of assimilation. And so that goes something like this. Okay, my neighbors in this world reject this Christian message. So maybe what we need to do is to adapt our message and even our way of life in order to make it more palatable to the world around us. Even if that means that we're gonna have to compromise on some things that the Bible clearly teaches. And so in terms of that first illustration, uh, it, it would be sort of like going to away games and then start adopting the cheers of the opposing fans there. And so, so here's the thing. Here, here's what's important to see about this. <clears throat> while, while those two approaches are obviously different in, in uh, certain ways, they're also similar in their motive, in what's animating both. And what's animating both isolation and assimilation is really a sense of fear. Fear, in the first case, of being influenced and, and overcome by the world. And then fear in the second case of being rejected by the world and not heard by the world. And so here's the thing we need to see though. Peter doesn't call us to either of those extremes. What he gives us in this whole letter, and he really starts to work this out specifically in this passage, is a third option and it's this. He calls his audience and us to be faithfully present within the world. To be faithfully present within the world. And so the question then is, how do we do that? How, how are we to, to, to live in this world and yet maintain the, the, this distinct identity within it? So that's some of what I wanna look at this afternoon. And here's what we're gonna see. We live faithfully in the world by embodying the gospel for the good of the people and places of Fort Worth. By embodying the gospel for the good of the people and places of Fort Worth. And you notice uh, that, that's some of the language of our mission statement that you can read on the back cover of our bulletin. Embodying the gospel for the good of the people and places of Fort Worth. So three points this afternoon. Um, first uh, question that we'll answer is this. How do we embody the gospel? How does Peter call us to do that in this passage? And it's the, in this way. Embodying the, uh, embody the gospel by embracing your identity in Jesus by embracing your identity in Jesus. So that's where he starts, and he gives us a couple of ways that we do this in verse 11. And the first is this, it's by remembering who you are in Jesus. And so you see it right at the beginning in the way that Peter addresses them in verse 11. He calls them beloved. And there, there, there is so much packed into that one word. It, it, it's sort of like the, the tip of an iceberg that you can see above the surface, but beneath is, is this massive piece and that's something of what this word, beloved, is to us. With that one word, what Peter does is he orients them to everything that he said about God's love for them. He's saying, you are loved by God. You are his beloved, and you literally could not be loved any more by him than he loves you right now. And that love that he has for you is certain. It's unchanging and it's eternal. And so you might ask like, okay, why would that be important? Why start by addressing them as beloved? Well, I think part of the reason is that, that it, these people have been scattered everywhere. They're, they're, they're living as sojourners and exiles. And in the midst of their exile, it is so tempting to start wondering, has God forgotten us? Has he abandoned us in this place? Does he really love us like he said that he loves us. 
And so P- Peter comes to them and, and says, that, that, that's a lie to believe that God has left you. You need to know that, that, that you are perfectly loved by the Father right where you are right now. That he hasn't forgotten you and, and that the reason that you can keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, which, uh, is what he calls them to in a moment here, is because you have this new identity in Jesus. You are now one who is defined as the beloved. One upon whom God has set his love, and you need to remember that that's who you are. So that's the, the, the first thing to remember. The, the second thing that he tells us to remember is, is that the real battle is within. The real battle's within. Verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so uh, here's what's interesting about this. So what Peter doesn't say here is, is that the real battle that you are fighting, Christians, is the battle that's happening out there. It's the battle with all of those friends and neighbors who don't believe the same things you do. That's not what he says. What he says and said is that the problem that you're going to face is actually a problem that is within you. The problem is the passion of your own flesh the sin that, that, that still resides within you. And, and again, the, the, the way the, the, another way to say this is that the, the temptation is to live as who you were rather than as living as who you are now. And, and here's why he says that's so dangerous. That sin that resides in your heart is actively trying to kill you. It is actively waging war against your soul. And so, uh, kids, here's what I want you to think about. You can almost think about sin as being something like a venomous snake. Now, would you ever take a venomous snake out and just kind of play with it some? Toy around with it just a little bit. You would never do that. What would you do if you found a venomous snake is you would get away from it in any way that you possibly could. That's what Peter's saying He's saying, you really need to see your sin for what it is as something that is waging war against your soul. It's not something to to toy with, to to indulge, to play around with, or or to think like, "This, this can't be that big of a deal. He's saying instead, live as one who has been set free from that. Live as one who has now been born again to this new life in Jesus Christ by the free grace of God. That's what it looks like to to, to embody the gospel. So two things there, to remember who we are. Secondly, then, to remember where the battle lies. So what Peter does in the rest of this passage, though, is he gives the reason why we're to embody the gospel. And so secondly, embody the gospel for the good of the people of Fort Worth. For the good of the people of Fort Worth. So verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, which is to say... I'm calling you now to live in accord with who you are in Jesus. Live now as God's beloved. But I want you to do this among the Gentiles. And so uh, when Peter uses this word Gentiles, he's, he's talking about non-Christians. So if you remember uh, in the passage that, that Andy looked at last week, uh, Christians are now, according to Peter, the new Israel. 
And so then he calls, uh, he, he calls those who don't know Jesus, Gentiles. But here's what, what I want us to notice. Here's his assumption. It, his assumption is that you are going to be in relationships with non-Christian friends and neighbors such that they will actually see the difference that the gospel makes in your life. And so it, it could be that in terms of application, that this might be the place for you to start. Because it might be that, that you hear this and you think, you know, I, I don't actually know that I'm close enough with my non-Christian friends to where they would even have a chance to see something different about my life. And so it could be that, that this passage is really an invitation uh, for you to do that. To actually cultivate a, a friendship and relationship with those non-Christian folks that are already present in your life. Here's the question though, why does Peter call them to do this? Look on in verse 12 as he continues there. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Okay, so, so here, here's what's happening. Christians uh, in the Roman Empire were for some reason being, uh, being spoken of as evildoers. And it's not, of course, because they were doing actual evil. It's because in some sense they were living this alternative lifestyle and it was being spoken of as evil. And this is really interesting if you've never heard this before. But the, the early church was often accused uh, as being uh, cannibals and those who committed incest. You think like, how in the world did that happen, right? Well, for this reason. Because they, the, those who were unfamiliar with the church heard things like this group of people eats the flesh of their savior and drinks his blood. Cannibalism, right? And they call each other brother and sister. And yet, in some cases, a brother is married to a sister. That sounds incestuous, right? And so they were spoken of as, as, uh, as doing evil. And, uh, and I, I, what's interesting about this is that that same thing happens today. It obviously doesn't take that form. But let me just give a couple examples of this. It could be that, that one example of this is people who would think, that the Bible's view of sexuality and gender is actually harmful and in some cases evil. And so um, I've got a friend who is a same-sex attracted celibate Christian and uh, he's begun sharing his story more widely. And he was telling me about how uh, as he shares some of his same-sex attraction with some of his non-Christian friends, he actually gets a good bit of pushback from them. Because they think in some cases, like, why would you ever deny and these desires and not act on them in some way? They think on the one hand that, that, that he's either crazy to do that or that, that, it, that he's even doing himself harm by trying to, to be faithful to Jesus in that way. That's one example of this. Another example would be the Bible being against abortion. And so Christians have, have historically always been for the life of both mother and child all the way back to, to saving children uh, from trash heaps and exposure in the early church. However, it can also be viewed by some as, as the, that view being harmful and even evil towards women. And I mention all of that just because the, the, the point is that this is part of life in exile. It's being spoken of as doing evil even when there's not evil present. Here's the question though. How does Peter want us to respond? Well, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't tell them to live in fear. What he says instead is to live honorably. He says, do 
good. In other words, put on display the love and the grace of Jesus in the way that you live your life. And so, so part of what this means is, is that uh, your pursuit of holiness isn't just for you. Your pr- pursuit of holiness is actually for the sake of your neighbors as well. My, uh, my RUF campus minister uh, used to say, in talks about marriage, he used to say this in premarital counseling as well, that the greatest gift you can give to your spouse is your own holiness. It's pretty true, right? So we could say it this way. One of the greatest gifts that you could give to your neighbors is your own holiness. Why? Verse 12. This is the reason that we're to keep our conduct honorable. It's that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what what, what Peter has in mind here is that they will see Jesus in the way that you love them and live your life. They will see Jesus in the way that you care for God's world. Jesus will actually become more beautiful and believable to them because they will see the work of his grace in your own life. And, and, and here's the thing too. Uh, Peter is not talking about living some sort of sinless, perfect life. He, he, he's, he's talking here about the fruit that Jesus brings about in a person's life. It's the kind of change that, that, that shows that Jesus is real and that the gospel is true. And so it could be that it's the kind of holiness that looks like a quickness to repent of your sin and to ask forgiveness when you've wronged somebody. It could look like the holiness of, of being humble, of recognizing your own weakness. It could be the, the holiness of the way that, that, that you withstand and endure suffering as one who has hope and yet is still in the midst of, of terrible circumstances. What, what Peter is talking about here is that your life bears witness to the grace of Jesus. And this is what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we embody the gospel for the benefit of the people of Fort Worth, even in the way in which we put on display God's work in us. Here's the deal, though. It's not just for individuals. He goes on in the the latter part of this passage to talk about places or institutions as well. So thirdly and finally, embody the gospel for the good of the places of Fort Worth. So verse 13, Peter uh, starts to get specific here with how we're to engage with the God-given authorities and the institutions around us. So he he mentions here civil government specifically, and again, think back to his audience. This would have been a huge question that they're asking. How are we supposed to, to relate to the Roman authorities that are all over the place? So what he says, verses 13 and 14, is to be subject to them. He says, submit to these governing authorities. And this is really close to what Paul says in Romans 13. But then uh, skip down to verse 17. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And here's why I think this is so important. What Peter's talking about here with this sort of uh, this submission is not something that, that is reluctant and begrudging. He actually says that, that this submission uh, looks like honoring the emperor. And then he goes on to say, and he says, oh, sorry, in verse 13 previously, that, that we're to do this, he says, for the Lord's sake. And in verse 16, that as we do this, we are living as servants of God when we do this. 
And there are all kinds of ways uh, that that we can apply this. We actually talked a lot about this when we looked at Romans 13 in the fall. You could go back and and listen to that sermon again. Um, I think probably what most of us think about when we hear this passage is we think first of the federal government. Um, That, we could totally apply it there. But what Peter says is that we're to be subject to every human institution. And that really broadens things out, right? And so, so what might that look like? What are some ways that we could think about this more holistically? Well, I want to look at verse 15. Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so, remember, this is similar to what he called us to in verse 12. He said, we're, we're called to do good. This time, though, it's not just in reference to these individuals. It's in reference to these institutions. In other words... He's got to be talking about more than just some sort of private piety that nobody else is ever going to see. What, he, what he's talking about here is a good that is public, that, that, that is outwardly and commonly recognized as good. Something that, that people w- would recognize as good for their community. Something that would be good for their city. What, what he's saying is, I want you to seek the good of the place to which God has called you. And that's very close to what God says to the exiles in Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah. This is the passage that was our Old Testament lesson. Let me read verses four through seven again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare, and that word is shalom, seek the shalom of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare or shalom, you will find your welfare or shalom. And so what what Peter's saying is, I want you to seek the good of the place to which you've been called, to establish yourself in this place, to pray for this place. And so this is what Peter is calling us to as well here, to to seek that the welfare, the flourishing, the good of the place to which God has called us. He's saying, I want you to get involved in the life of this place. And so in, in the words of one pastor, love Babylon better than Babylon loves itself. And so what might that mean for us? It could mean a number of things. It could mean um, that you should get involved with your neighborhood. It, should mean, it might mean that you get involved with your school. It might mean that you get involved in your workplace. That you are seeking ways to serve these particular people and to serve these particular institutions. To do everything that you can to be a blessing to these places and these people. And so here's the thing, you might hear that and you think like, okay, hold on though. What if I don't agree with all the policies or the laws of our city or of our school or even of our neighborhood, right? Like what if I can't get on board with everything that they're talking about doing? Well, here's the thing. Babylon was a pagan nation who wanted nothing to do with the God of the Bible. And yet God calls Israel to seek the good of that place to pray for the good of that place. Fast forward to Peter's day. The Roman Empire was in no way Christian at this point. And yet Peter says, 
do good for these cities. He says to honor the emperor. This is probably uh, Emperor Nero, who was an absolutely horrible person. I, I mean, in, in, in every way that you can imagine. And yet Peter says, honor him. So are there going to be these complex, difficult moral questions where you are having to ask, what does it look like to, 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 faith, to be faithful to my Savior Jesus in these spaces? Yes. There will be very thorny questions. But here's the thing that we need to see. Jesus is actually calling us to shine light into those dark places. To bear witness to Jesus right in the middle of those difficult spots. So here's an interesting question to think about. What might that place look like? What might that neighborhood look like? What might that city look like if you weren't there? If a follower of Jesus was not present in that place? So um, some of you will know the name uh, Joey Turner. He's one of the uh, co-owners of Brood. He started a, an organization called City Shapers. He actually now works with uh, Young Life at TCU. Uh, I heard him give a talk a number of years ago, and the title of the talk was adding value to the city with no strings attached. And so one of the points that he made is that uh, the, is the problem with how Christians are often perceived, and it's typically as always leading with an agenda. Always sort of feeling like they're manipulating people in some respect. And so what he did then is try to come up with ways to do good for, for, the, uh, for, for people and for our city with no agenda beyond just that, just doing good. And so the result was Brood and this organization, City Shapers. And so I mention that because that, that's just one possibility of the kind of thing that Peter's talking about here. It does not mean that you need to go start a restaurant or a nonprofit, although it might mean that, right? What it does mean, though, is that if you're a student, if you are a kid at a school, if you're a parent, then seek to give yourself for the good of that school. It means that maybe if you are a small business owner, that you're going to do everything that you can to, to, to love the people that work well for you, that, that, that work for you, to create gr a great working environment for them. It means that you, in your place of business, are going to love the people that you are working for. It means you're going to serve your coworkers well. It means that, that you're going to seek to be a great neighbor and that, to the very literal people on either side of your apartment or your house. And I think uh, one of the reasons that this is such a great passage for us, such an important passage for us, is that this is the posture that we want to have as we move into our new building in this new neighborhood. We want to be a blessing to our neighbors. We want to do good for our neighbors. This is actually a lot of what we're going to talk about this coming weekend uh, in our winter conference. Josh is going to speak some about what it looks like to love our neighborhood well. I would strongly urge you and encourage you to sign up for that, to register for that, come be a part of this conversation. Because here's the thing, um, we don't actually know what this is gonna look like in all the specifics. What would it look like for us to, to really love our neighborhood well, to be a blessing there? But what I'd ask you to do is to pray with us that God would lead us in that way. That we really would be a blessing uh, as a church to our neighbors and to our city as a whole. Let me close with this. Do you know that the, the ultimate reason why it is that, that God calls us to be a blessing to the people in places of Fort Worth? The ultimate reason he calls us to do this is because this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. 
that he has entered into this broken world to do good for us, to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us. And of course, that came at tremendous cost to him. And what he calls his church to now is to be a part of that work. And that's the reason that we don't have to be afraid. Because you can go confidently to be a blessing to your friends and neighbors knowing that Jesus is with you, that you are the beloved, that he will never leave you, and that nothing can separate you from his love. And so you can go confidently knowing that Jesus is at work in you and through you, embodying the gospel for the good of the people and places of Fort Worth. Let me pray that, that God would do that in us. Father, we thank you uh, that you have lavished your love upon us in Jesus and that you have called us to be a blessing to our neighbors and to our city. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit, by your work in us, that that would be true, uh, that we would move into those places and engage with this place that you've called us to bear witness to you. And we pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.